Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Israel's special forces remain inside Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital, still searching for proof that Hamas headquarters are underneath. We bring you a report on what was found. And Israel's allies wrestle with conflict and conscience. My conversation with former French President Francois Hollande. Then, a story of devastating loss. Dr. Izeldin Aboulaish still fights for peace after losing dozens of family members to this war in Gaza. And finally, the power of words. Author Jason Stanley tells Hari Srinivasan how language can influence war. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. Israel pushes ahead in Gaza, leaving the world in turmoil. In Washington, pro-Palestinian demonstrators chant for a ceasefire. Whilst in Israel itself, the five-day march to parliament in Jerusalem continues, demanding all their hostages be rescued or released. As conditions in Gaza and the death toll there worsen, Israel's allies grow increasingly concerned. Despite widespread condemnation, the IDF remains inside the main hospital, the Al-Shifa, which they claim was a Hamas command center. They have yet to release conclusive proof of that. And this was the scathing reaction of the Israeli claim from the Jordanian foreign minister. That is yet to be verified by any independent international entity. Obviously, what they claim to be evidence that they showed is just ridiculous. It's an insult to intelligence to say what they showed uh, uh, is uh, representative of, of a military command uh, center. Israel says it'll reveal more in the coming days amid mounting pressure to justify the raid. Correspondent Nick Robertson has a closer look at the operation underway at the hospital and what has and has not been found. Inside Al-Shifa Hospital, Israeli forces are facing their biggest credibility test in Gaza so far. After weeks of claiming its basement is a network of Hamas bunkers, the IDF moved in in the early hours of Wednesday morning. But 24 hours later, no evidence of Hamas's subterranean network here has been presented. We found weapons, intelligence materials, military technologies and equipment. In addition, a military command post was located. This building of the Shifa. Israeli troops breached here a few hours ago. This is uh, where patients come in order to get MRI services. We have no independent access to our Shifa hospital so far. If you follow me behind the MRI machine, I'll show you what our troops exposed just minutes ago. An IDF spokesman gives an unchallenged tour of what he claims they have discovered. There is a, an AK-47, there are cartridges, am ammo, uh, there are uh, grenades in here, of course uniformed, and all of that, this was hidden very conveniently secretly behind the MRI machine. CNN cannot independently confirm the IDF's claims, but two days ago, when CNN was taken by the IDF to the Al-Rantisi hospital in Gaza, we posed this question when shown another alleged Hamas weapons cache. But some people, they would look at this and then question the reality of what, we're, what you're showing us. I think this is hard evidence. 
that you see here. And when we entered the hospital, you asked me, why did you open the back of the hospital like that? Because we knew the terrorists were here. <laughs> Unlike Al-Rantisi Hospital, Al-Shifa still has staff inside, seen here a few days ago. But reaching them has been made near impossible as communications were cut as the IDF went in. One doctor did manage to get a call through. The whole hospital is totally like... Uh, let me say in a way, uh, handicapped, like no one is operating, no one is seeing anyone. Uh, it's like all waiting for what's the end point of this one. Are we going to survive this moment or not? And a local journalist inside the hospital reached by CNN said he had seen the IDF, quote, conducting search and interrogation operations with the young men amidst intense and violent gunfire inside the hospital. CNN cannot independently verify these accounts. Hamas dismissed an earlier IDF claim that found weapons at the site as propaganda. On a tour with troops, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appeared emboldened by taking the hospital. They told us that we would not enter Shifa. We've entered. And in this spirit, we say a simple thing. There is no place in Gaza that we will not reach. Absent proof of Hamas's bunkers in al-Shifa, Netanyahu may find that reach curtailed as international outrage at the IDF offensive mounts. Indeed, as that fighting continues and the death toll mounts, Joseph Borrell, the foreign policy chief of the European Union, delivered this message to Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen. But let me ask you not to be consumed by rage. I think that uh, that's what the best friend of Israel can tell you. Because what makes the difference between a civilized society and a terrorist group is the respect for human life. Inside Israel, for the first time today, opposition leader and former Prime Minister Yair Lapid called on Benjamin Netanyahu to resign, saying the Prime Minister has lost the public's trust. As we said, many of Israel's staunchest supporters abroad are trying to maintain that support while warning of the dangers of what the UN calls carnage in Gaza. And I've been speaking to the former French president, Francois Hollande. President Hollande, welcome back to our program. We are in a terrible, terrible global situation right now. And I wonder what your immediate thoughts are about the solution, the immediate solution with the storming of the Al-Shifa hospital, with the amount of deaths of civilians that are clearly mounting in Gaza. Your own president called for a ceasefire. What do you think? We are in a war, a murderous war. Hamas is responsible for it. We know that Israel is going to push for the eradication of this terrorist organization, but there must be respect for humanitarian law. And that is why I've been urging, like uh, many others, for a provisional ceasefire. And I stress provisional because we need to get the hostages freed, evacuate the wounded, and to get help to the people inside Gaza, particularly the displaced persons. Afterwards, after what has happened in the hospital, I think there must be a provisional ceasefire, what some people have called a humanitarian truce, but I think it would be better to call it a provisional ceasefire, because I think this will allow us 
wants to prepare for what happens afterwards. So it's during the war that we have to prepare for post-war. Can I play for you your own president? And of course, he worked for you. You were from the same party. Uh, president Macron's intervention this weekend, and it was the first of the major Western leaders and the allies of Israel to actually call for a ceasefire. He did not say provisional. He said a ceasefire. Let me play it. We clearly condemn this terrorist attack and this terrorist group and recognize the right of Israel to protect itself and react. But day one, we say that this reaction and the fight against terrorism because it is led by a democracy, should be compliant with international rules, rule of war, and, and humanitarian international law. And day after day, what we saw is a per permanent bombing of civilians in Gaza. I think this is the only solution we have. This is fire. So how do you interpret what he called for? And is President Macron, is France, moving away from what other, like the United States has said? Well, first of all, he was expressing his feelings about what was happening in Gaza, whole families being bombed, children dying, and there's been the attack on the hospital. So I think uh, that his compassion is something which everybody can understand. But it's important that France speaks up clearly about what's happening in Gaza, even if the responsibility is clearly that of Hamas. As for the ceasefire, I think uh, we're all in favor of it. And we know perfectly well that Israel can't stop there. It's beating Hamas and putting the organization out of action. So what we have to do, and I think this is the message that democracies as a whole have to convey, is to say that there should be a provisional humanitarian truce and also to uh, work up a peace plan. But this peace plan can only happen with Arab countries. For too long now, the Palestinian issue has been put to one side. Democratic countries have not been engaging with it, uh, have not addressed the two-state situation, and Arab countries have been negotiating directly with Israel without even mentioning the Palestinian issue. And now the Arab countries, because it's their responsibility, have to negotiate with the entire international community to prepare for the post-war situation, and especially the two-state issue. And that implies making sure that Gaza is safe because obviously it can't return to what it was. Do you believe that um, now, as you say, many of the Western leaders took their eye off the Palestinian issue? They thought there were other more important issues, and there are a lot of important issues. But do you believe that this crisis, this terrible, terrible war, will really concentrate people's minds now to solve this crisis once and for all? We, uh, yeah. Yes, with the return of war like this, uh, I think we simply cannot have the same kind of images coming back every 10 years. Terrorist attacks followed by Israeli intervention. Neither can we accept the settlements that Netanyahu supported in the West Bank, which tomorrow can give rise to such dramatic events as we've just seen in Gaza. So now, after the war, 
one has to take action, which means finding a political solution. It's only politics which will allow us to find a solution to this conflict. So I'd like to read to you in, in, in view of what everybody's saying and what you're saying about the day after, because it does not look as if Israel has a plan first. Do you think Israel has a plan for the day after? Netanyahu certainly has a plan, but it's not the right one to reoccupy Gaza, but that's impossible. He doesn't say reoccupy, but I know he's Yes, afterwards he corrected himself, uh, but he was wrong. I don't think he does have a plan because Netanyahu may not still be in power the day after the war ends. So the Israelis really should be asking themselves how they want to live now and next to whom, and whether it should be with or without a Palestinian state. That is a question first and foremost for the Israelis. But we, the international community, we should facilitate a peace plan and not postpone it until later. We need to do it now. And it's still the two-state solution that's the only one on the table. In a Washington Post op-ed, Jordan's King Abdullah, who obviously has a peace agreement with Israel, has called again for the two-state solution. But he's also said, in the name of our common humanity, how can such brutal acts and murders be accepted? He's obviously talking about what's happening in Gaza. Today's human suffering and global tensions urge us to adhere to the norms of humanity before we reach a moral breaking point for all. So there are two things there, a moral breaking point with what's happening there, with what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, all these other places, and wanting to restart something that Jordan has signed up to, Egypt has signed up to, the Palestinian Authority, the United States, Europe, the Security Council, China, Russia, everybody. What do you make of the moral collapse, moral breaking point? Yes, uh, there certainly has been a neglect on the part of democracies of a number of issues, and not just the Palestinian issue. There's been neglect of what dictatorships have been and what they could give rise to, in particular Russia. And what we see quite clearly is that these authoritarian regimes have no moral scruples left. Now they're determined to resort to force. It's force which has been imposed over recent months. And this is something completely new. We were all under the illusion that peace would prevail everywhere and that it was the common objective. But no, that is no longer so. There are countries today envisaging resorting to force. So that's the issue. Will democracies be strong enough, but also morally strong enough? It's not enough to be strong. It's also a moral issue to ensure that the world will be able to solve the major global crises. So to me, that's a really important and difficult thing that you've just said, that we no longer as a world believe that peace is the default option, but it's war. And you've talked about powerful, um, powerful nations doing that. So about Ukraine and Russia, it looks as if people have taken their eye off that for the moment. I don't know whether governments have, but it's not in the news. It's not being talked about. Are you worried that Putin is making hay, in other words, taking advantage of this crisis in the Middle East, even Xi Jinping. Putin wants to gain time across the board. Time is in his favor. I think that in Ukraine, the fact that the conflict on the front line isn't moving despite the Ukrainian counteroffensive, means essentially that what he's doing is to wait for the US elections 
and hoping that if the Republicans win, and in particular Donald Trump, that the U.S. will abandon Ukraine and that the Europeans would not mobilize quickly enough to assist it. As for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Putin only sees advantages in its continuing because, meantime, nobody is going to reproach him for bombing Ukrainian towns or getting more arms from either Iran or North Korea. So we see that authoritarian regimes, Russia, China as well, are thinking about it, hence the meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping. And at any rate, Russia has every interest in these crises never being resolved. And Xi Jinping, as well as uh, Putin, calculate that we are weak, weak because we don't want to defend ourselves properly, and they think that we are weak from within. Our divisions, our societies, which are difficult to govern, the social debates, all this sows doubt as to the solidity of democracy. So if you were president or if you're advising any of the NATO allies and Ukraine's friends, what would you say? Because billions of dollars in American and European help and military assistance has gone to Ukraine. And as you say, their main general has called it a stalemate right now. What would you do now to send Putin the message that you want to deliver? We will continue to assist Ukraine to supply them with more and more powerful arms until such time that Russia eventually decides it cannot occupy territory which is not theirs. And if, regrettably, the US were to withdraw their assistance to Ukraine, then we Europeans, with the British, should continue to increase even more our aid to Ukraine. If we stop, we would create the precedent that force will prevail over law. And finally, there have been marches all over the world since October 7th. Some pro-Palestinian, some pro-Israeli, notably this weekend in Paris and in Washington, there were pro-Israel marches. I remember, you know, when you led a march after the attacks on Charlie Hebdo, and the world came in solidarity. If I'm not mistaken, Benjamin Netanyahu came as well to those marches. Do you see an irrevocable anti-Semitism rising? Islamophobia rising? How do you analyze the public mood and what will happen in terms of, 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 of keeping the public, you know, from being so divided? Antisemitism has deep roots in France and in Europe, and history, alas, shows us that. So we have to always be very vigilant as to the resurgence of racism against Jews. And, of course, the Israeli-Palestinian crisis has rekindled this uh, racism against Jews, which we thought was dead. But there is often a section of the population which is young and urban and not necessarily Muslim, contrary to what is often assumed, although they can be Muslim, which is eager to condemn Israel. But by condemning Israel, there is the risk of anti-Semitism, which is uh, unacceptable. And this is what happened in France, in the UK, in the US. People have been attacked simply because they're Jewish. We have to react to that. 
I reacted by calling for a march after the massacre at the Jewish supermarket in France and uh, after Charlie Hebdo. And last Sunday, there was another demonstration, and it was necessary, I thought, useful for French people to show their solidarity and fraternity with the Jewish community. That doesn't mean to say that there hasn't also been anti-Muslim acts, racism, and discrimination. We have to fight against that scourge as well, obviously. Authoritarian regimes actually want to see this. There are no demonstrations in Russia, and I can't see any in China either, or in Iran. In Iran, if you demonstrate for your rights, you end up in prison if you're not actually shot. So authoritarian regimes are hoping that through these conflicts we will be divided. So what will we have to do? We have to stand firm. Each one of our societies has to stand firm around common values and what our democracy stands for, without forgetting, of course, the Global South, because that is the other challenge. The countries of the Global South, South Africa, Brazil, Africa, if we want a fair distribution of power in the world, should also be part of these major decisions and not forced to remain in a kind of ambiguous situation over these global conflicts today. President Francois Hollande, thank you very much for being with us. Merci. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And in 2009, during an earlier ground war in Gaza, Palestinian doctor Izeldin Abuleish suffered a devastating tragedy. His three daughters were killed in an Israeli attack. He showed me what happened there, and yet he held on to his dream of peaceful coexistence, writing a memoir called I Shall Not Hate. But now, some 25 of his family members have been killed in Gaza in this new war. So I asked Dr. Abulaish how he's able to hold on to forgiveness in the face of such loss. Dr. Abulaish, welcome to the program. We have spoken together over many, many years. The first time we met was in 2009, after your daughters, your niece, were killed in an Israeli tank fire during the last or one of the last ground invasions. You then wrote a book called I, I Will Not Hate, I Shall Not Hate. How were you able to summon that 
forgiveness at that time? At that time, even when I wrote my book, I shall not hate because the people were expecting me to be afflicted with this disease called hatred. And even, I mentioned it, if I could know that my daughters were the last sacrifice on the road to peace between Palestinians and Israelis, then I will accept it. My daughters and my niece were not the last. They are just numbers in the series are continuing till now among the tens of thousands who are killed. That's why I don't accept it. And I feel these days, it's not with hatred. I feel angry in a positive way. In that a positive I, way you feel yes, angry? Yes, I want to do more because I know the meaning of the loss. I lost my daughters. Mm -hmm. I see my daughters in every innocent human being who is killed. And the Palestinian children and the Israeli children, the innocent who are killed. So the only way, as a medical doctor, when there is a bleeding patient, I rush to stop the bleeding. So my main goal now, as I said to you, I wish to come here to celebrate the ceasefire, to save lives, to give life. And just to point out here, when I visited you, you were a doctor living with your family in Gaza, but working across the border in Israel at the special hospital there. You're an OBGYN. So you had real relations, so-called, with the other side, right? Yes. And what was that like? Because you knew the story of the other. Yeah, I know the story, and that's why I lived it. I understood it, and that's raised the question about ignorance. We judge each other without knowing each other. Mm -hmm. So it's important to know each other, to communicate with each other, not to be misinformed. When I worked, I believed in the mission of the work I am doing, that medicine is a human equalizer, stabilizer, socializer, harmonizer, sustainizer. So you see it, if you go to any hospital, can you differentiate between the cry of the newborn Palestinian, Israeli, English, Canadian, American, the cry of the newborn baby is a cry of hope, cry of life. And the newborn baby is born free, <laughs> born free, and we treat all equally. Why, when they leave the hospital, we start to discriminate between them based on ethnicity, religion, color, name? It's time to learn from that. As you know, Israel has said it will try to remove these children, somehow get them out of the danger. Whether or not it can, we're not sure, or whether it will. They're also calling on doctors to abandon al-Shifa and take, just go. And yet we've seen in many wartime situations, whether it was the terrible floods in New Orleans during uh, Hurricane Katrina, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Gaza, whether it's in Israel, wherever it might be, doctors have a duty of care. Would you leave if you were told to leave, even if your life was in danger? I will never leave the place where I am coming. This is my moral responsibility, my ethical and the human responsibility to give care to the people who are in need. It's immoral to leave them. You lost, I think you said, two dozen, 25 members yeah. of your extended family in this current war, not to mention, as we've yes. mentioned, daughters, a niece in 2009. I lost them and even now, I'm trying to get in touch 
with my brothers, with my sisters, to talk to them, because I don't know if I will talk to them later on or not. Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, they are moving coffins. They are waiting in line for nothing they did. They are people like others. They want to survive. They want to live. And when my nephews, nieces, were we as Palestinians, as every other parent, they invest everything to raise their children, to be great people, to be proud of them. My brothers, they raised, and my sister, they raised their children to be educated. One of them is, Maya, is Bara, who graduated from the School of Medicine, mm -hmm. and she was supposed to start her residency. My niece, Isra, who is architect engineering. My nephew, Ali, he is a physiotherapist. My niece, Hanan, she was killed with her husband and her three sons and daughter. She named her daughter Aya after my daughter Aya because we carry the names. We want to keep them mm -hmm. alive. They are children and even my nephew's wife. She was killed while she is pregnant with her lovely daughters. Is this going to put an end? I say it. How much of the Palestinians' blood to satisfy the thirst of revenge and anger? What will this do? You know, you've heard probably Netanyahu and others talking about de-radicalizing Gaza and destroying Hamas, whether or not that's possible. But do you think it will create another generation of radicals? It will lead only more bloodshed, more suffering, more pain, more hatred, more violence and more extremism. And I am sure we need rational voices to bring an end to this and to realize one thing, military means and violence will never put an end to this. What is going to make them safe? The Israelis? Yes, from what yeah, yeah, the course. kind of slaughter that happened. It's good. This is a question we need to ask what are the root, why they don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. This is important. And uh, to dig deeper, to find out the root causes. Both sides, Palestinians and Israelis, they want to be safe. They want to be free. And to end the occupation, the big elephant inside the room. And personally, I fully believe Palestinian safety, security, freedom, independence, equality and the future. Both of them and the Israelis are dependent and intertwined with each other. So no one is safe as long as the other is not. And we need to work towards that to equalize between them and to get rid of the obstacles which are preventing them from being equal, which are the occupation. And you always said that when you were treating patients, they could have been from Mars, but they were your patients. They weren't Jewish, they weren't Muslim, they were patients. And you have moved to Toronto where you say you have neighbors who are Jewish. Yes. How do you interact on a daily basis, particularly in a situation that's so difficult? I deal with them as Canadian, as neighbors, and that's important. We never brought the conflict here. This is important. Anytime politicians, they bring and they import the conflict from there to here by their attitudes, by being biased, polarized, and complicit about what is happening. You see the demonstrations in London, and that's what I say, the conflict back home 
it's contagious and it crosses barriers. So we need to put an end, putting an end in a just way, all the world will benefit from it. It is clear to me after all these years that Hamas, military or political, do not put the fate of the Palestinian people first. They put their own fate and the struggle, whatever you might want to call it, first. And I wonder how much, you know, everybody says all Palestinians are Hamas or all Gazans are Hamas. I wonder what you would say to that. You know, I want the people to differentiate, not to generalize. And this is one of the problems, the propaganda they use it. Palestinian people by their nature are secular people. But the current situation in the Gaza Strip and to reduce the conflict and the situation just in Hamas and Israel, not as a Palestinian people with an Israeli people. That's what is needed. This is the main issue. Put an end to it. And even Hamas was elected in 2006. Since 2006, till now, we don't have election. Help us to have election, to have a free democratic election on the, all of the occupied Palestinian territories in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem, and let the Palestinians decide by themselves who can lead them. I urge, and we want to have a new leadership that represents the whole Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. And even what is going on back home, it's, there is difference between Palestinian Authority and PLO. Who represents the Palestinian people everywhere is PLO, not the Palestinian Authority. Palestinian Authority is a byproduct of Oslo Agreement, which was signed between PLO and Israel. Mm -hmm. And even for that, PLO recognized the existence of Israel. But Israel didn't recognize till now the existence of the Palestinian people. And all of the time you hear it, they say no for 67 borders, no for East Jerusalem, no for withdrawal of the settlements, and of course, no for the rights of the return. So what else? We want to live side by side based on international law and international resolutions. This is the guarantee for long lasting harmony and life between Palestinians and Israelis. Mm. Let us humanize for once, not to politicize for a political agenda, those political, to leave a legacy in their life. What are they going to say to their children? The children are the future, they are the hope. We want them to live in harmony. As I deliver babies at the hospital where they can live a Palestinian side by side to Israeli, why not they live outside? Dr. Izzardin Abulesh, thank you very much indeed. What thank a terrible you. situation. And yet what wisdom he shows, born of experience and deep, deep empathy in the hardest and most difficult of times. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them on Be My Guest, the podcast. New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
Now, Palestinian health authorities now say that more than 11,400 people have been killed in Gaza. The war was launched after the October 7th attack when an estimated 1,200 people were killed by Hamas. Now, the Israeli military has given CNN body cam footage taken from a Hamas fighter that day. Correspondent Oren Lieberman takes us through it. An explosion before dawn on October 7th. The time is here and the attack is underway. Allahu Akbar, God is great, they chant as they cross the breached fence. Go right, go right, go right, they say. Less than two minutes later, they cross the second security fence. They are in Israel, heading towards a kibbutz. The sun is up, and a day that will reshape the region has begun. This video comes from the body cam of one of the terrorists who took part in the attack. It was obtained exclusively by CNN from the Israel Defense Forces. For the first time, we also see video inside Hamas tunnels before the attack. It is a look into a network of tunnels with what appear to be supplies stored in the darkness. Writing on the walls in Arabic says what's hidden is far worse. Get them, get them. Above ground, the gunman fires his first shots. Go on, man, go on, man, he screams. They stop on the way. More than a dozen militants gather here to prepare for the next assault. One has several rocket-propelled grenades on his back. Minutes later, a group advances across an open field, moving towards the village of Kisufim. The gunman charges the last bit and spots an Israeli soldier on the ground. Others join in celebration. Moments later, he is more composed as he turns the camera on himself. He says his name and that he's 24 years old. He's a father. He says he killed two Israeli soldiers. He asks God for victory and well-deserved martyrdom. On motorbikes now, they keep advancing, moving together along empty Israeli roads, or nearly empty. The man cheers as he sees bodies on the road. His is not the first wave. He rounds a corner. Here, we have seen this place before, among the first videos to come out after the attack. This is dashcam video from a car on the same road moments earlier. The car approaches a group of militants who open fire. The car coasts, its driver almost certainly dead by now. It is just after 7.40 in the morning. After a quick reload, the group approaches a military base near the kibbutz of Re'im. For 65 minutes since crossing the Gaza fence, they have had nearly free reign in Israel. The gunman closes the distance with a weapon he took from an Israeli soldier, opening fire, and fire comes back. This man's part of the attack comes to an end. The terror is just beginning. And let's not forget the more than 240 or so hostages who were taken across, including small children. 
As grief and anger cascade across Israel and Gaza, language can be weaponized to drive a further rift, spread propaganda, and advance agendas. The war of words has also become a dividing line between the international community in its efforts to respond to the crisis. And it doesn't stop there. From the radical speeches of Donald Trump to the extreme rhetoric of Russia, language plays an often dangerous role in politics. Yale philosophy professor Jason Stanley joins Hari Srinivasan to discuss discuss his new book, The Politics of Language. Christian, thanks, Professor Jason Stanley. Welcome back to the program. Uh, you have a new book out called The Politics of Language, and it is happening and dropping at a time when there is so much language to be discussed. Um, my first uh, example that I want to um, pull up is former President Donald Trump at a speech on Veterans Day. He said, Quote, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections. But tell me when you see that, when you heard that, what went through your mind? Okay, there's a bunch of stuff to unpack uh, in that statement. Let's begin with vermin and move to the claim that uh, Joe Biden is a Marxist and a communist, essentially. Um, so so when you speak, you attune people to certain things. So you attune people to things in the world, in this case, rats, uh, and you attune people to practices, in this case, things you do with rats. Uh, but this kind of hate speech, because that's what it is, uh, it attunes its audience to a practice of dealing with vermin. So it is, uh, the concept of genocide is complicated in this case because it's being applied to political opponents and not an ethnic group. But we have to remember that the Soviet Union intervened in the definition of genocide to make sure it didn't apply to political opponents or else Stalin would have been accused of, of genocide. So this is politicide, uh, a politicidal speech. Um, and we can't forget that. So uh, now the second aspect of this is the overbroad use of Marxist and communist that one is familiar from, from the, say, from the well-known writings of, say, Hitler, <laughs> where uh, Hitler said, uh, essentially, any pro-democratic uh, person, uh, the social democrats, uh, any political opponent was a Marxist. Uh, so this overbroad use of Marxist uh, was used uh, in the 1930s by the Nazi party to incarcerate uh, any uh, anyone accused of this charge, which meant social Democrats, the political opponents of the conservatives. Uh, and uh, and this and we have to remember that in the 1930s until Kastallnacht in November 1938, the people who occupied the concentration camps were Hitler's political opponents, the pro-democracy forces, who he falsely labeled uh, as Marxists. And, you know, it's absurd to say that there's any kind of dramatic Marxist or communist movement in the United States today. So what do you mean by politicidal? Politicidal is targeting a class of political opponents for extermination. Uh, so, for example, in Indonesia in 1965-66, between 500,000 and 1.2 million uh, Communist Party members were murdered by the government. 
Uh, that was a politicide. Stalin committed politicides uh, against many millions of his political, what he perceived as his political opponents. So it's targeting political opponents rather than ethnic or religious groups. I do want to point out something else that he said later in the same speech. He said, quote, the, th the threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. Our threat is from within. What sort of actions do you think, you know, when you talk about attuning an audience, what does it do to an audience when they hear their leader say things like that? So uh, it cleaves the audience into his supporters and the opponents. And the opponents are being said to be so destructive, such an existential threat, that nothing they say can be taken at, at face value, uh, that you can't trust anything they say. Because, you know, in war, you can't trust your opponent. Uh, if your opponent is telling the tr truth in war, saying something in war, they're just doing it in order to deceive you. So the idea here is to create a friend-enemy distinction. Uh, and the uh, as we say in our book, the friend-enemy distinction has a communica communicative consequence. And that communicative consequence is you shut out the voices of your political opponents. Uh, so he is trying to create uh, a, uh, a wall between Democrats and him and saying to his supporters, look, this is not about discourse. This is about us versus them. They are an existential threat to the nation. Don't talk to them, incarcerate them. So in this context, your book, your new book, The Politics of Language, you're really saying that so much of the conflicts that we are seeing around the world today have a pretty significant component where the language used to describe them, the opponents, and the framing either, what, is an accelerant or entrenches people onto one side? How would you describe it? Well, as the philosopher Willard Van Orman Quine said, you know, everything is mixed between world and language, separating out what language does and what what world, what factuality is, is very difficult. Uh, so there's like a feedback loop, if you will, between the speech and the actions. Uh, and it's certainly the talking strengthens the background, uh, the background ideology the uh, you you know you talk about vermin you link it to say in this case a stolen election uh, and then you do a feedback loop so you repeat it you link it to the background ideology Germany in the 1931 according to Claudia Kunz the scholar of Nazism was the least anti-Semitic country in Europe uh, if you expected a genocide you would have expected it say in France um, but in Western Europe. That is so. Uh, but by 1939, it's the most anti-Semitic country, uh, and that's because of this kind of feedback loop, this kind of repetitive, uh, repetitive linkages between vermin and the targeted people. Uh, and then you have to link it back, as the Nazis did. They they linked this back to the Jews, Jewish German Jews, or the world Jewish conspiracy, supposedly uh, betraying. The Germans in World War One, which, as Timothy Snyder has pointed out, is like the current situation. They're saying that these uh, these hidden Marxist forces betrayed the country by stealing the election, and we need revenge. So, the more immediate conflict is raging right now. 
between Israel and Gaza. And we have seen so many different examples of language, specific words being used with very different connotations and meaning by both sides in this. How, how do you make sense of something when you hear the word genocide being used maybe in different definitions or apartheid and whether they're parallel or frankly, even the word ceasefire and how political that word has become, which prior to this would have been a fairly innocuous, let's just put down the guns for a second kind of comment. Uh, let's begin with ceasefire. Okay. So uh, cease. what is the expression ceasefire is trying to do? I think ceasefire tries to put a kind of equivalence between sides. It tries to, it, it suggests that there's kind of a bargaining moment. And each side uh, thinks that the other side is a, like a genocidal threat. <laughs> and so ceasefire kind of suggests emotionally a break in hostilities of the sort that occurred in World War One, where it wasn't really clear who the right side and who the wrong side was. Uh, you know, a ceasefire with the Nazis is hard to imagine, right? <laughs> so, uh, so ceasefire has the emotional effect of toning toning the emotions down. Let's move to the word genocide. This is a word fraught with historical associations. Uh, now, um, I think we can talk. We can talk about the factuality of the word genocide. In, in our work, we emphasize again and again that speech is more than just about factuality. Uh, uh, here, uh, it's particularly horrific to accuse Israel of genocide because the very word genocide historically it originates with Lemkin and it's connected to the Holocaust. So when you cast that against Israel, uh, Israel's actions, whether it's factually apt or not, it carries an extra knife edge. Uh, now, uh, the other direction, when Israel or various forces in Israel accuse Hamas of genocide, uh, they're trying to connect Hamas uh, to the Nazis. Now, Hamas is a violent terrorist, genocidal, murderous organization that in no sense should be equated with Palestinians. Um, but uh, but this sort of grows, uh, and this is what you're finding the Israeli government or portions of the Israeli government saying. Uh, they're saying, well, the allies bombed Germany into submission, killed a lot of civilians. That's what we're doing to target Hamas because that situation is exactly, exactly like the Nazis because they tried to commit genocide against us. How is it that they feel okay using that term, genocide against a very weak, a much weaker opponent? Uh, Hamas and uh, and the, the combined forces of Hamas are, are strong and terrifying and a threat, but it's not like Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany was an overwhelming power that, uh, that, uh, that threatened the world uh, and, and targeted Jews for no reason whatsoever. There's a long history here. So uh, what's happening in Gaza is not Nazi Germany. I mean, that's absurd. There's a long history here. But by saying that Hamas is perpetrating genocide, and it's like the allied in, uh, invasion of Germany, uh, they're reaching back into history uh, to try to make these historical connections. Again, it's not factuality. Uh, it's, it's history. You know, in, in the wake of the horrendous attack by Hamas, 
just two days after um, there was the defense minister of Israel. He said, uh, you know, we are fighting against human animals and we are acting accordingly. Given the context of what we've been talking about, what you've been writing about, what went through your head when you started to hear things like that? There's been too much genocidal speech uh, on these, on both sides, really. Um, but uh, but that's both sidering it. In this case, Israel is, is the stronger power. Um, it was horrific what Hamas did. I think it is warranted and indeed required to call Hamas a terrorist organization because their acts were terrorist. Um, but when you call Palestinians human animals, uh, you're you're saying they don't have any rights. You can kill their children. Uh, you're justifying it. Uh, you're saying you don't you don't have to apply the laws of just war. You don't have to treat them. You can treat uh, children uh, as uh, non-human animals. You are saying you don't have to treat them like humans. And you know you need to treat everyone like humans. And I think. You know, it's a simple moral uh, dictum, um, uh, don't kill children. What is language that you can use when two sides think that the other ones are acting like Nazis and being genocidal? Yeah, it's very important to switch vocabulary in these cases when we're dealing with um, fraught historical associations. And other times it's necessary <laughs> to use the fraught historical vocabulary. I think it's necessary to point out that Trump is speaking like a Nazi. <laughs> uh, he's not speaking anti-Semitically. There's no anti-Semitism there, although anti-Semites will hear it that way. Um, uh, but, you know, it's important to use the historical resonances. Now you're asking when it's important to back away from the historical resonances, from terms that are loaded, to calm things down. Uh, how do we do that? Uh, and I think, you know, my colleagues at Yale who work on climate change, uh, they they've, they've made advances on this problem. Uh, they go to communities in, uh, that, that uh, tend to, when they hear the expression human-caused climate change or climate change, they tend to think that's the opponents, that's the people I shouldn't trust, that's vocabulary, you know, that, that means they're Democrats, you know, they're Democrats. Um, and they try to point them to uh, actual circumstances in their communities that uh, that are actually the consequences of climate change, uh, but things that the local community sees. Uh, we're losing sand on the beach. Uh, let's do something about that. Uh, let's protect our shoreline. So you switch the vocabulary up to avoid the expressions that are connected with, uh, with polarization. Uh, and the goal of the goal of uh, one goal of politics, of political strategy, is to infuse more and more words with this kind of identity. So, as soon as your political opponent uses one of those words, in this case, climate change, people's uh, minds shut off. Um, so they they group people into groups, and people don't listen to the arguments. They're just like, okay, that's my opponent. You know, one of the examples you talk about is the phrase "super predator" and how successful that myth became, I mean, it was back, what, in the 80s, and uh, Donald Trump even accused uh, Joe Biden of using that phrase, and while there is no record of that, but there is record of, at the time, First Lady Hillary Clinton using it. Um, what were the ripple effects of that, and why did that stick so much? 
Yeah, so super predator comes from the mid 90s. And that's important because violent crime in the United States start, starts dropping in 1991. Uh, super predator theory comes after this drop in violent crime. So John DiUlio, it's sort of formulator, uh, sets, begins his, his 19, I think, 1995 paper, My Black Crime Problem and uh, and yours or ours, with uh, violent crime has been dropping, but hold the champagne, don't pop the champagne corks yet. Um, and he predicts that there's going to be a new group of people, super predators, and most of them are young black men, he says. And, and they can kill, maim, a kill, maim, and rape without remorse, never explaining why they would do that if they have no emotions. Um, and so so he predicts uh, that violent crime will shoot up. Um, and of course, violent crime continued to sink so that 2010 to 2012, we're looking at the lowest rates of violent crime and recorded uh, in, in modern US history. Um, so it was wildly wrong. But the vocabulary affected policy. In particular, it affected policies. Uh, it, many states uh, adopted laws to charge juveniles as adults. And so what happened, so there was no, there was no justification for this. The super predator uh, thing was a myth. It was a complete myth. But like the vermin vocabulary, it justified treating children in terrible ways. Um, so we know from U.S. history that this way of describing people uh, leads to treatments like locking kids up um, for sentencing to life in prison. So we can just imagine what will happen with the contemporary vocabulary. Professor Jason Stanley from Yale, the author of a new book called The Politics of Language. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Harry. It's a really important reality check for the need for precision in language. That's it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. Remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all across social media. Thanks for watching and goodbye from London. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.